Well, hello, I'm Kevin Kelly, and this is the Big Compute Podcast. Today's topic is cloud HPC for government users using FedRAMP and other technologies. Uh, today, I have with me uh, Chris Chang from the National Renewable Energy Lab, also known as NREL, which is uh, a research lab part of the Department of Energy. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Good, Kevin. Nice to talk with you. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. I uh, First thing I want to get out of the way is I just absolutely love going to the NREL lab in Boulder, Colorado. It is, it's beautiful for a government building. It's just... Well, thank you. I take no responsibility for that, but uh, I also find it a pretty nice place to work. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, when you're approaching the lab every day for work, it's it's a whole lot different than uh, approaching a, a large, you know, 70s era, era concrete government building <laughs> uh, that, you know, I go into a lot of those too, right? And it's just just the, the use of, of natural materials and the different kinds of woods and things like that in the building. It's just, it's a, I love being there. Yeah, it is definitely a unique place. Yeah, and it's kind of along along the way of the theme of the the lab itself. So I wonder if you, you could talk about that for a few minutes because, you know, most people I talk to don't don't understand or don't even realize that the government is is in, well, they're in the business of of doing research for alternative energy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So NREL is um, one of a complex of Department of Energy labs, and it's. Uh, there are, are various kinds. There tend to be two main categories. One are the uh, kind of general purpose labs, if you like. So Oak Ridge, Argonne, uh, they're working on basically anything under the sun um, that's of interest to the Department of Energy. But uh, NREL is a mission-focused lab, and so there are a handful of labs in the DOE lab complex that are really focused on a mission. And the National Renewable Energy Lab is um, focused on, obviously, renewable energy, but also energy efficiency. No, I just I love reading and seeing about the different research projects that are coming out there. They're, they're pretty out in front in terms of a, a lot of the things they're looking at and how they, they're trying very hard also to transfer a lot of that research um, and apply it in the commercial sector. So, hey, as a taxpayer, I, I love this. And as a, as, a, as a resident of planet Earth, I'm really into it also. I, you know, I'm very happy to see this going on. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that uh, makes Enroll special as well is that it's focused on what might be called bridging the gap. So um, there is a fair bit of basic science going on, but a lot of the focus is on applied science, engineering, and techno-economic analysis to understand how new technologies might percolate into the marketplace, how they might get taken up by industry, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it is very practically minded. So with, with all those um, focus areas that you're talking about, there, there's an awful lot of high-performance computing and other types of research computing that goes on at the lab. Definitely. Uh, and it is already always in short supply. 
Um, so there's there's more demand than there is supply, and it's growing. So I think traditionally uh, some of the more basic science research has embraced large-scale computing. and That can be the only way they can get to where they want to go. Industry is kind of in that transition, I would say now, as I perceive it, in starting to see the possibilities that large-scale computing can bring. Uh, obviously, places like probably Boeing may already have embraced it, uh, doing huge engineering projects, but now that mindset as, as uh, large-scale computing is becoming more available is starting to percolate out into uh, new stakeholders. Yeah, well, I, I can definitely see then how the, the demand just um, in, increases, right? So, I mean, on, on site, the, the lab has some pretty big HPC systems, right? So I think it's, it's a Peregrine and Eagle. Right. So um, we're on our second, I would say, uh, main self-hosted system now. So Peregrine was our first. Uh, mm -hmm. That was order two, two and a half petaflops, uh, and that just got retired last month, actually. And then mm -hmm. uh, Eagle, they, they named them after birds. So Eagle is mm -hmm. our current system uh, that went into production early this year, and that is uh, eight and a half petaflops, about wow. 2,200 nodes. Uh, so it's a fairly big, yeah, in-house computing capability. Yep, and I imagine, given the the amount of demand, that it's it's a it's a pretty busy machine, high utilization. Absolutely, yeah. It's already oversubscribed, so we're still uh, processing requests for fiscal year twenty coming up, and it was not quite two x oversubscribed, but close to that. So, um, yeah, as, as soon as it's there, it's already not enough in some ways. Wow. Well, then, what's, what is a researcher to do, right? They, the machine is oversubscribed. Um, we, we, we hear people looking out in other places uh, to go do their big compute. Um, the cloud seems like a, uh, an interesting place, and it, it's been a, really a focus area for you or an area of investigation for you over the last couple of years. You know, computing is constantly changing, but one of the currents that has been uh, flowing past us is the commodification of, of computing. So cloud is one of the manifestations of that, where you think of computing almost more as a utility, the way you would get power in your house more than um, you know, big iron on-premises necessarily. We're in that stage of investigating, you know, what can we think about in terms of that particular current? Well, I have to also think then that there's a, now the stakeholders within the lab kind of take a look at this and say, well, that sounds great, but there's all, there's a Pandora's box that you're opening up here on governance and compliance and the economics of, of doing it. Right. I mean, cloud, cloud computing has been around for a while now. Um, Commercial clouds have have been out there for a while, you know, especially with the AWS and Azure and the, the others all, all ramping up. But um, 
you know, early on in the market, I heard a lot of people saying, hey, you know, um, HPC is, is, is not something that we want to do in the cloud because of the, the special requirements for that. So you have this, this technology issue and then you have this compliance um, issue. Uh, are, are we at the point where we can actually go do it? It depends on how you define HPC. DOE has its leadership class facilities and the computing that goes on there is not what one would migrate to the cloud first, let's say. Um, yeah. Not, you know, not necessarily if you think about the, the economic scales of the hyperscalers like Amazon, you know, the, the systems that DOE is exploring are, are you know, let's say, 200, 200 million. That's in some ways rounding error for you know some of these companies so it's not that they couldn't in principle host something like that but whether or not it would fit into their business model is a different matter so um, i think there's that type of hpc is going to stay probably the way it is for a little while um, but we tend to have customers who want to do computing that doesn't necessarily fall into that model. So in some ways, it's more general technical computing. Uh, there you might have lots of just single node jobs, and they just need to run a ton of them, or you know, modest scaling needs. So maybe they need a handful of nodes uh, that are connected through a high-performance network, but they don't necessarily need huge uh, scaling. And data-centric computing is coming online now as well at the lab, and there that opens up a different set of uh, challenges and opportunities. You know, can we do HPC in the cloud now? It, it sort of depends on which part of HPC you're referring to. I think some things could could fit very well today, other things uh, might never really be a great fit. But the cloud computing space, as you know, is evolving quite rapidly, so it's hard to say in a year whether that assessment will still be relevant. My experience with, you know, working with the labs on that is, is very consistent. I, I think there's just such a, like you're saying, such an economy of scale when you have some of these hyperscale machines. The cost per core hour is, is so hard to, to replicate in a, in a commercial setting. Um, but definitely for uh, specialized projects or shorter-term projects, there's, there's an awful lot of things out on the edges that we've seen that. But... You know, the biggest roadblock that I experienced doing this over the last three, four years really had to do with, with compliance and with security, right? I mean, look, mm -hmm. you, you, work, you work in a federal lab. It's a secure facility, and the data there is protected and, and for a lot of good reasons. Um, and so when I've had conversations with folks about the, the concept, the, the really the big the thing that stopped us from, from moving forward had to do with figuring out how we could do this in a way um, that was secure and, and that everybody was satisfied with. It met the standards. There are, of course, you know, the classified labs that are doing research that probably would not make it onto a public cloud uh, in any case. But for NREL, the the biggest challenge, I think, is working with industrial partners. And so they have sensitive data that you know, doesn't rise to a level of classified, but of course you still don't want it where anyone other than the stakeholders can see it. The lab has worked with Amazon 
has worked with FedRAMP in the past and got the certification uh, needed to host that kind of data. And uh, and Microsoft as well, I think, is in that, that pool. But yes, compliance is definitely a challenge that's currently getting addressed in the cloud space. Um, and some of the, the cloud vendors can handle that and some can't yet. But I think it's it's moving in that direction. So I imagine you'll mention FedRAMP. My understanding of that is really to have the federal government have a single framework in which to to think about these compliance issues uh, in in computing. Uh, certainly, cloud is is relevant there. But more generally, how do you think about security in computing, cybersecurity, uh, and unify that? that vision across the federal government. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, so for folks that are listening that aren't familiar with FedRAMP, it's, it's actually a program um, administered by GSA, the General Services Administration. And so the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, FedRAMP, um, is really designed to uh, accelerate the adoption of cloud, but also have this like consistent security baseline and authorization process. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I, I think the frustrating thing uh, for folks like me that are, that are on the commercial side is that for every, every government customer that I've gone to over the last you know, few years to talk about this had a spreadsheet that had you know, 200 things on it that we needed to answer or approve. Um, right. And of course, everywhere you go, that 200 question spreadsheet is different. Maybe there's 120 questions that are in common, <laughs> and you know, then you start with you know the ones that aren't, and so it it made it hard, and then there was always that question as to whether uh, it would get authorized um, up the chain, right, by the chief, um, the CISO, right, so the chief information right. security officer and the other the other folks. Yeah, so FedRAMP for for what I've seen. Um, is, I guess it depends on how you look at it. It's either opening doors or it's greasing the skids because for a lot of folks, it is enabling them to see things that they like, oh, I didn't consider this before because I just think, didn't think I couldn't do it. Or I've always wanted to do this, but now this isn't a way, this is a way to accelerate it. Yeah. It's nice to have a single set of standards and even contacts to work against. So even if the lab is doing things in its own way, you know it has to map to that unified framework at the end. And that in itself, I think, is a value. Yeah, it's both a combination of greasing skids and opening doors. What's really helped cloud HPC on that end has been non-cloud, I'm sorry, non-HPC workloads. Because FedRAMP is for all of industry and all, you know, like you, you, it's not an HPC only thing. It is a general computing thing. And by having um, not just the, you know, the, the big players in the space get FedRAMP authorized, but seeing other um, more specialty area, you know, ISVs and, and folks go through the process, it's really helped kind of, open that door for um, for the HPC market because they're like, wow, this is possible. It's hard, but it's possible. And, and there's this momentum, right? So 
um, I was in contact with a company that, that does some financial management software. Um, and it was great. Like it was like they were going through the process and we were able to talk about it and their experiences with the labs. So, um, in general, it's a, for me, it's, I look at it as a, a federal program that yes, it's, it's helping in a lot of areas. It's definitely going to help drive HPC, but there's a whole industry behind it. That's going to drive all sorts of other things that we don't even, we can't even think about yet. Yeah, and a lot of the business processes were migrated to the cloud long before we were talking about HPC. Um, so I absolutely hear you there. And you know, the other point that brings to mind is, you know, HPC compared to commodity computing is a pretty small fraction of the market. And you know, there's a reason a lot of HPC is done on x86 processors instead of the vector processors of your because the commodity computing market went to x86, right? That's where all the money was. That's where all the development was. That's where all the investment was made. And you know, HPC is good at figuring out how to use and, and leverage that investment in industry, right, to get work done. So, um, yeah, I mean, as, as the rest of the world goes, so HPC will probably follow to some degree. No, I think that's a that's a great way to look at it. I um, I know you and I have talked about you know like video gaming and things like that. And but when you you think about it, right? Like the GPU technology mm-hmm. really came. You know, there was some smart HPC people that said, "Hey, <laughs> we can go use yeah. that." You yeah, know, I mean, and yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good. Yeah, a much larger industry that was driving the development of all that infrastructure before HPC got to the table. Yep. And, of course, yeah. if you keep following that thread, um, now we're seeing a lot of, of, of AI and machine learning stuff coming out of, of that corner of the industry um, mm-hmm. because of the, you know, the, the great work that's been done with uh, GPU technology. And so... We're looking at that as another, you know, skipping or skipping stone to uh, a stepping stone. I'm sorry to uh, to doing it in the cloud. Yeah, and you know, certainly in my area of science, I sort of self-identify as computational chemistry. I guess, um, you know, you're seeing more and more machine learning and AI applications in that space as well. So. You know, it's not just the computing, but the science that depends on the computing that follows that too. Um, so that that'll be interesting to to see how that develops. The the challenge, of course, is the the model for for science. Um, you know, a lot of, of machine learning is still uh, somewhat black box at the moment, and so if you even if you develop something that's ninety nine percent accurate outperforms what you can do by hand. If you can't map it back to some set of basic principles, do you understand it? Is that, does that count as science? It's certainly useful, but you know, where does that fit? So I think there's kind of this connection between you know, computing and AI and science engineering analysis and how useful these technologies will be or how they, how they will fit into the process of science engineering and analysis going forward. You know, there are some use cases that are spot on and others where, you know, 
it'll take a little more thinking to figure out where it fits. Well, sorry, get what, track. What, <laughs> well, you're doing great. No, what, what it, it actually makes me think about, you know, some folks that I've dealt with where they want to go try it, but the mm-hmm. cost of entry or the barrier to entry is really hard or really high, right? Where, Hey, you know what? I, w- I would like to look at that, but in order for my lab or my organization um, to give me the, the proper tools to go do it, um, it's an awful lot of investment, right? So some things never get an opportunity to happen because you're kind of waiting for, you know, that moment, right? When there's enough, there's enough inertia in the organization to go buy resources or procure resources, like, you know, let's look at GPUs, right? And to go do it. Um, and so I still, I, you know, for me, I think about cloud all day, right? And I'm like, well, this, this opens that door. So as a researcher, now there's a pathway for you to go do that and say, look, I just want to try rent equipment to go do that exactly. and, and then see what happens. Yeah, that was the model I was thinking of as you were talking is, you know, going to rent a, an auger or something, you know, piece of equipment. You wouldn't buy it yourself for one job. And so if you, you know, you didn't and there weren't a rental market, you might just never get the job done. But because you have this ability to go out there and borrow or you know, rent something for for much less than you would pay if you wanted to buy things outright, that opens some doors. And yeah, I can see cloud being a great platform for exploring certain uh, things that you, you wouldn't necessarily buy outright and, and bring it up in-house. On the flip side of that, there has to be enough interest for the cloud providers to actually put that on the floor as well. So, you know, if it's too esoteric, there's probably not going to be enough interest to actually get something in the cloud. It has to build some critical mass. You know, enough people have to want that auger so that you can keep a rental market going. So yeah, I think, that's, you know, that's a great point. Might be, FPGAs might be an example where there's probably enough interest that they can make a small investment and get a return on, on that investment. But you know, specialized ASIC might not be worth the time, and you just have to buy that and get it in-house if that's what you need. Yeah, I, I think you make you, you make a, a great point. It does, it does help that we do have um, some commercial cloud providers that are big enough that, you know, what, what seems like grains of sand to us, they, they can kind of bring together and, and make it into a bigger thing. So FPGAs is a greater, is a, is a great example, right? Where, you know, how many people are really interested in that? Well, there actually are, but when you are a, a large cloud provider, you can collect that information as on interest, uh, you know, interest within the, the market and then offer that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a great example. There, there are FPGAs that you can, in effect, rent out on the commercial cloud right now. Now, yeah, um, uh, is there selection? Is there the level of software support? Uh, you know, that that probably could be a lot better. But if it was just one one lab or one guy in a lab, one researcher, yeah, they'd have to go buy it, right? They wouldn't be able to do this shared model or the rental model to do that. Yeah, I also think kind of looping back to what we talked about earlier on FedRAMP is if now if you're doing the rental model, you can do it in a way that is compliant 
and is not going to get get a talk a stern talking to from security folks, right? Because it's all great that you can go out yeah. and, and and on demand this stuff, but it still needs to be, you know, within the parameters and the guidelines and the governance that that your organization has set up. Yeah, and you know, it it is a big deal. There are providers who we can work with and providers that we just flat out can't based on their FedRAMP status. Um, and, you know, that, that can affect a lot of not only the choices that you make in terms of going out and procuring some capability, but also in the discussions you have that, you know, when we think about what the future looks like, you know, if, if something isn't FedRAMP certified, there's sometimes not even a point in bringing that up. <laughs> Some people might just get a little aggravated even hearing about it because, hey, if it's not doable, why talk about it? So, you know, FedRAM mm-hmm. certification is, is pretty important. I can definitely see as, a, as a, the acceptance of it, it accelerates um, mm-hmm. that it'll be more, it'll be the standard. So right now, um, there's actually legislation uh, winding its way through Capitol Hill to make FedRAMP to actually, you know, authorize it so that it is a permanent part of of the government. So when that happens, right, and it is legislated, I think that you're you're actually going to see a, a lot more uh, pressure or encouragement to um, to use it. Yeah, and I think it'll probably get streamlined as well in the process. But certain things that might be a little confusing or difficult now will be more manifest uh, in terms of how to achieve that certification. So once things get more standardized, it's not just at the status of a program, but it's, it is the way to do things. You know, I, I think there'll be less mystery around it than perhaps you had seen or, or I had seen. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And that's on, on both sides of the, the table. I think for the, the providers that, you know, that we're familiar with, that I work with, it can be a long road. It's a, it's a huge investment, you know, time, people, and money. And, and mm-hmm. definitely for the, for the government agencies that are working with it. But on the other side, um, the other agencies that can leverage what um, your agency has done or another agency has, has done, I think is very appealing, right? And very appetizing to somebody so that, you know, if the Department of Energy issues an ATO, which is an authority to operate for a, a provider for FedRAMP, other agencies in the in the government can take that ATO and leverage it. They don't have to go through as much of the process and work. And so that's huge. That for you, that means you can leverage what the Department of Defense or the Department of the Interior has done. Opens up all sorts of doors, right? And that kind of accelerates the growth. So you get rapidly accelerating adoption, which yeah, definitely be good because you don't mind making the investments as long as you know that it's an investment, a good investment. When there's a lot of confusion or ambiguity around the process, it can be difficult to know: am I even doing the right thing? Or is it just not worth starting until somebody forces me to? So, I, yeah, mm-hmm. I welcome the standardization. Yep. Yeah, and so, um, you know, 
what, what are we seeing on that end? I, I see a lot of people asking, right? Where has this been done already, right? Who else is doing this? You know, can I, you know, basically, you know, hop on their back and, and have them, you know, bring me, bring me part of the way or, or to the finish line. Um, right. so it's great. Again, you know, I, I made the, the wise guy remark earlier as a, as a taxpayer, but I love this stuff because it, it, this is, this is what we should be doing, right? It's this collaboration between agencies. It's, it's, you know, it's smart money management and it's going to help us do better things because it's going to speed up things. You know, this is yeah. acceleration. I, I love it. Yeah, I agree. So Chris, I wanted Keep to shift gears from. a little bit. Yeah, um, I wanted to shift gears a little bit because um, you know you said you self-identified as a chemist. Um, what what are the things that you know you're looking at and saying, wow, you know, when we go to design our our next environment, right? right whether it's an on-site machine, because we know that these are years in the making, mm. or it's a cloud or a combination of that. Is there a is there a technology or a capability or a trend that you're, you're seeing that you're considering for, you know, Hey, when, the next time we do this, here's what we're going to try. Yeah. So, you know, we're already in the process of investigating what the requirements needs of the user community are for our next system. And, um, you know, certainly the, the currents that are going on in the industry drive some of that. So, People are there's certain subsets of computing are are adapting rapidly to GPU uh, computing and you know some of the backdrop for that is that the what's called the Exascale Computing Project, um, which is GOE's sort of vision for HPC and large scale computing going forward, is highly dependent on acceleration, so not CPU-driven computing as much as things that are plugged in sort of next to the CPU. And that is that environment is basically condensed down to GPUs. So in some ways, GPUs are the only game in town. And so a lot of demand is starting to look more GPU-centric because basically the future of HPC is, is looking at least the near future is looking more GPU centric. Uh, so we're thinking along the lines of how much GPU capability do we need in the system? Uh, we have some workloads that are ready to go, machine learning, molecular um, dynamics. So that would be you know, the chemistry inspiration. Uh, or it can use GPUs very well. Uh, there are other pieces of computing that have not yet gotten there. And so, you know, as the as the system evolves, or as the the, the world evolves, <laughs> GPU world evolves, I think more and more work will be able to be mapped onto GPUs just by nature of the evolution of the tools uh, and the software stack around GPUs. But um, there are also there's also efforts by developers and uh, user communities to adopt GPUs in their computing because there can be such gain from them. Um, so that's one aspect of system design, certainly that's, that's relevant. Um, another is the rise of data-centric computing. So 
storage is becoming more of a focus. I guess I should say storage capacity. So there are very large data sets out there, and people want to do new and different things with them. Um, some of those data sets are in-house. Some of them are already in the cloud. And so it can be impractical to move large data sets to where the computing is. It can make sense that you know, when you design a system and you're supporting some fraction of data-centric computing, you need to make sure that the computing is done near the data rather than assuming that the data is going to get moved local to your compute. Yeah. And you know, there are a variety of other design points, I suppose. Um, you know, we support a lot of interactive type of computing, so it's not necessarily traditional HPC. Our user community is it's kind of in, in some ways more engineering and analysis grounded. And the model for batch computing is not necessarily something that they've fully embraced yet. Uh, so we try to bridge that, not necessarily just trying to get them into the batch system, but also supporting what their current needs are in computing. Well, and then it sounds to me too, like you're going to have some sort of a, a transition or a transformation with, with how you are, are supporting these users, right? If these, if all these, these changes you see coming down the road, um, and I have to imagine that they're not all the guys like you and me who started out submitting to a script. Um, I'm guessing a lot of these folks haven't seen a script. They all know somebody who's seen a script. So some of our <laughs> users, you know, get a script and it worked the first time and then they will use it for the life of the project and it, does just fine for them. Um, but yes, there is, you know, kind of an evolution of, of models, computing models, um, and we're still figuring out the right way to support those. I, it, it calls to mind, I had a meeting last week with a government customer where for the first time somebody said to me, you know, we were talking about building a solution with them. And they said, is there an app for that? Because our users, our, our, our younger users, our millennials will want to um, submit and monitor their jobs from their phone. And uh, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting idea. Not only to bring in infrastructure issues, but also compliance issues. So, you know, how much can you push out to somebody's personal phone through through the web um, and how much do you, you know, need to keep more secure or how you secure that. So yeah, that that's an interesting point. It also taps into you know what I see is kind of this remote, always on type of, of model for maybe not employment in general, but I think there is a movement toward being less tied to a physical space driving into the office, you know, eight to five or nine to five or whatever in favor of being more flexible in terms of space and in time. Yeah, you might want to go see how things are going, you know, when you're right after you've got your jammies on and you don't really want to set up your workstation to go do that. You'd rather pull out a phone, bring up an app, have an interface that's you know, seamless and be able to work through that and get useful things done. As the world goes, you know, HPC tends to follow. I know that if I've submitted a job that's going to run for a, a week, 
I'm going to keep an eye on it or I would like to. And having that convenience is, is great. But when I talk to like my, my sons who are, you know, in their late twenties, early thirties, to them, it's a necessity that they would have that kind of access. And I think, yeah. you know, you know, you're right. Like I would have preferred to have done it that way. So I wouldn't be tied to a machine the way you uh, described it. I think it's a reasonable demand. You know, we, we have to build, build those types of interfaces and tools to enable that. You need to get on that, Kevin. <laughs> it's, it's on the list, Chris. Well, look, <laughs> um, we're, we're coming up at the, the end of our time. This, this was really great and, and informative. I love hearing about the dynamite things that, that are going on at NREL and, and in your world. Looking forward to, to finding out more, but is it words of wisdom, Chris, that you want to leave us with? <laughs> Other than, you know, keeping your eyes open to, to what's coming and just being flexible and kind of keeping a, an open mind. I... There you go. No, that's great. That's terrific. Well, look, I, uh, I really want to thank you uh, for spending uh, this, this time with us on the, the Big Compute podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing you again person soon, maybe at Supercomputing, maybe before that. Um, it's in Denver this year, so it's just a short commute for you yep. from Golden. And I'll uh, be there. You know, well, thanks again, Chris. Hey, thank you for having me on. So I appreciate yeah. it. I enjoyed the talk. All right. Well, again, this is Kevin Kelly, and this is the Big Compute Podcast. Thanks for listening in, and uh, we hope to catch up with you again soon.